that fade out, that nice smooth, that's that superhero fade out, smooth music. I'm keeping my jacket on because we perpetually keep it cold in here because nobody's ever here. And I don't think y'all particularly care what shirt I have on anyway. You just care if I'm being heretical or not. So I'm keeping my jacket on today. And we are staying in the book of Romans. I felt like Mike's prayer could have been a service. Should I was like, shit, after that prayer, we can, amen, that's it. Y'all can enjoy y'all Sunday. Some of y'all enjoying y'all Sunday regardless anyway. Eating while you're listening to the message. What is this? You're making eggs right now, bacon. All that eating, feeding the kids. Breakfast in bed, all that. Can't wait till I get to do that. We need to switch how we do sermon so I can do sermon in bed. Might have to switch. Give us some time off, team. And there's a new little, as a matter of fact, we're going to talk about that the media team meeting. There's a service called StreamYard. You can do sermons from your house. Might have to do that so I can be cozy. I won't be in my pajamas preaching. All right, so we have been, we're, going to, we're staying in Romans today. We're going to do an overview of Romans chapter 2. We will not do an overview of every single chapter, but Romans 1 and 2, I felt like, were, were important enough. I mean, all of Romans is important, so it's not like there's not a chapter that you couldn't do overview, but some chapters will. Like next week, we'll do more than just one chapter, but today, we're going to pick up in Romans chapter 2. That's where we ended off, and in, in chapter 2, Paul is furthering the theological framework that he laid out in Romans 1. He's building a case for, but remember, when we got to Romans 1, 16 and 17, we said that's the life verse of Paul. That's the life verse of the rest of Romans. It's the life verse of Paul. And it was essentially, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power to save. And so Paul, after that verse, he begins explaining why it is the gospel that saves and why people can no longer trust themselves. And he makes the point that the gospel is the power of God to save. And then he ends that section with the righteous live by faith. So if the righteous live by faith, by implication, then you don't live by works. And that's primarily, and this is what he's laying out. The righteous have to live by faith because everyone, everyone sins in their works. And any sin is worthy of God's judgment. And so Paul continues explaining at the end of Romans chapter 1, he he lists a myriad of different sin issues that are the result of people not submitting to God, not acknowledging who God is. Everything from sexuality to just things that we would see in normal deviant behavior among people. He lists those are the consequences of rejecting a God whose beauty and invisible attributes can be seen in all of the world. And so he is he is talking about a particular people and their sin issues. And then he transitions to chapter two and he continues with the reality that it has to be faith by works in the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, because everyone is sinful and worthy of God's judgment. So he opens up chapter two with these words. And I quote, 
Therefore, every one of you who judges is without excuse. For when you judge another, you condemn yourself, since you, the judge, do the same things. We know that God's judgment on those who do such things is based on truth. Do you really think any of you who judges those who do such things yet do the same, that you will escape God's judgment? Or do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Because of your hardened and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. Let's pause there for a moment. This is a much different tone than Romans 1, verses 8 through 15. Remember that? We looked at that last week where he talks about he is excited for them. He, he says that I go throughout the world and, and, and tell the world that there's a church in Rome for your, your faith is, is, is known throughout the world and he, he can't wait to see them and impart some spiritual gift to them and to be mutually encouraged by their faith. There's this brotherly affection for people that he's never met, which we said is a lesson for us that if he can love and pray for people that he doesn't know, then we should be able to love and pray for people that we do know. This is a different tone, though. What's happening here? Where's the brotherly affection? Well, there are times in the scriptures, and the times in the letters, when the author of the letter is addressing a particular aspect, a particular topic, or he's addressing a particular people group within the church. Just like on a Sunday morning, you might hear a message on, say we did a message on parenting. Well, if you're not a parent, it might not apply to you in the same. So there are people who some things may not apply to them based on where they are in their life, based on where they're at in their relationship with the Lord. But Paul understands that these dynamics are true, plus inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. More importantly, God understands what's happening and uses Paul to speak directly to what he knows is available in the hearts of people, even if other people don't know that. So he inspires Paul to write these verses. Now, many people, theologians, speculate that that Paul was describing the sin of the Gentiles, non-Jewish people in Romans 1, 18 through 32, sort of. Even though it's humanity, it's really talking about those who do not believe in Yahweh in, in God of the Old, of the Old Testament. Then he transitions to talking specifically about the Jews in, in chapter 2, and there's some evidence of that being the case. However, I don't think in this particular passage he went from Gentiles to Jewish believers exclusively. I think he's talking about all believers who believe in God, and I'll explain why I think it's not just Jews as we get further down in the passage. He's talking to people who are aware of the sinfulness. You're, you're aware of this. As, he's, if you're, as, as the person, whoever's reading this letter, is reading the letter, people are hearing, they're aware of, they live in Rome. It is a law, I mean, it's the, the percentage of people who believe in Jesus at this point in time when this letter was written may be less than 1%. 
It's one church in, a, in like New York City. One church. The rest of the city is idolatrous, it's worshiping different gods and idols and different animals and all these things. So as he's reading this list, as they're reading all the, the sins, they're like, yep, I've seen that, I've seen that, I've seen that, I've seen that, yep. That's around the edge. Remember, wasn't them? They do that. They do that all the time. They're aware of people who do these things that don't believe in God. And it's easy for anyone whose heart, who doesn't sin in particular ways, it's easy to be self-righteous towards the people who do. Or, which I think is more insidious in this passage, is that the people of God tend to think that their sins while knowing God, are less significant than the sins of people who don't know God. Almost as if because grace, I'm under grace, that my sins against God are less significant than those who don't know God are. And so he speaks directly to that perspective, which language is very self-explanatory. That if you judge others, and you do the same things, you are storing up wrath from God. The passage begins with the word therefore, and we've we've said this plenty of times, so let me just give you quickly the therefore rule. Whenever you see the word therefore, it basically means, in light of everything I just said, this is true. So usually the rule is this. When he says therefore, He's talking about everything up until the last time he said, therefore. That's typically the rule. Doesn't always happen. Sometimes it doesn't. But who cares? It's fun to talk about it that way. Whenever he says, therefore, he's speaking of everything he said from the last, therefore, which spoke of everything he said prior to that. So this, therefore, in 2.1, the last time he used, therefore, goes back to Romans 1 in verse 24. So he says, therefore, so starting in verse 26 is where he's explaining all of this and it's connected to this, therefore. So if we go back to Romans 1, beginning in verse 26, we see this. For this reason, God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. The women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. The men in the same way also left unnatural relations with women and were inflamed in their lust for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the appropriate penalty of their error. And because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they do not do what is right. So they do what is right. What is not right, excuse me. They are filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They are full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, malice. They are gossips. Slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. Although they know God, God's just sentence that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they even applaud others who practice them. This is a good summation of just humanity. In any culture you go in, you'll find this. Mike's prayer is indicative of this reality in our own nation, even among our own believers, among the church. It's indicative that even though people know things are wrong, you applaud people that do them because it feels right. I remember when I was in the street, we used to be like living wrong for the right reasons. There's never a right reason to live wrong. 
He gets to this conclusion after reading that. So the therefore is based on all of this. Therefore, after everything I just said, every one of you who judges all the sin that others do are worse because you do the same thing. You do the same thing. So you judge these people for doing it and you do the same thing. God's people judging people that are not God for their sins as if their sins of God's people don't matter to God are less significant to God. So he's flushing this out. God cares about this. Whatever we see in God's word, he cares about. If we truly believe that the word of God is inspired by the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, then God cares about people judging other people for the sins that they do when they do the same things. Now, here's the concern, if you will. Maybe concern is too strong of a word. But the language here is making a distinction. And the distinction needs to be made because it says you who judge. But we're supposed to judge, though, right? We're not people who don't judge. You know, the world says, you know, judge not and you'll be judged. They quote that. That's one of the most, most famous misapplied passages coined by the, by the prophet Tupac. Only God can judge me. Right? So Jesus, we're told you judge a tree by the fruit that it bears. But there's a distinction here of the kind of judging that it's talking about. Because obviously you can't, how do you share, when the Bible talks about admonish one another, how do you do that unless you make an evaluation, unless you see someone in sin? How can you be faithful to be a Christian without challenging sometimes, stirring one another to love and good? How can you do that without making a judgment of what you see? How can you judge a tree by the fruit that it bears, but then be condemned? In all honesty, just because I may struggle and sin in a particular way, it doesn't mean me saying that you're doing it is not true. Even if I'm doing the same sin, if I say you do it, it's still true. So what are we talking about here? Why is there so much concern from God about judging? What, what type of judging is he talking about? Well, here's a distinction that he makes in the passage. Verse 2. We know that God's judgment on those things is based on truth. So God's judgment on those who do such things is based on the truth. So this verse presents a dichotomy. God's judgment is based on truth, so by default, then our judgment is not. God truth, ours isn't. But we have to make judgments. So should we never judge because we also struggle with sin? Is that what this is saying? So if, I'm in a, if you're in your D group and you're struggling with, you know, gossip, you struggle with it, and then someone else is confessing it. Should you not open your Bible and pull out verses and help them? Or if you see them doing it and it's causing damage, should you not say anything because you struggle with it? If, if none of us can say anything to anyone because of sin and we struggle with sin too, then who would talk? How could we have real fellowship? So what is happening in the passage? Well, the distinction is God's judgment is based on truth, and we're supposed to be discerning based on that truth. So how do we deal with this? Well, the question becomes, what kind of judgment is he talking about? 
And we'll see one from this passage and one from out of the passage. First, it says this. Let's look back at verse 1 and 2 again. Therefore, every one of you who judges is without excuse. For when you judge one another, you condemn yourself. Since you, the judge, do the same things, we know that God's judgment on those who do such things is based on truth. See, he says, for when you judge one another, you condemn yourself. You see, God isn't talking about you making an accurate assessment of someone's character. He's talking about you're condemning someone's character. You're condemning someone's character. When you do the same things, and you're condemning yourself. You're condemning yourself. Judging is not an evaluation or an assessment. It's the condemnation of what other people do. It's condemning a person essentially to hell and possibly, possibly treating them as their sins deserve. This is why God's judgment is brought up. Because when God can condemn someone to hell, it's based on truth. Why? Because by definition, truth means the one making the judgment does not do the same things as the ones that he's judging. The one who makes the judgment cannot do the same things. God doesn't sin in any way, shape, or form. So God can, is the only one that can actually condemn people because he's never guilty of committing the sins that people commit. But why is that the standard of truth when it comes to judging from a condemnation perspective? So we are never, biblically speaking, I remember when we used to ask this question all the time, hey, you think they saved? Like somebody died. You think he went to heaven? Every time, every time somebody would, there was a period where it was like, you think he, would, you think he made it? That's what we say, we think he made it. And we knew he made it to heaven. I remember people were waiting. I remember I used to do it too. Then one day I just got uncomfortable with that. And I got uncomfortable because I was thinking about the thief on the cross one day. And I remember like in the last moments of his life, Jesus forgave him. And he, he didn't do any works of obedience except confess. So I was like, man, the the grace of God extends so significantly that even on your last breath, he might let you in. So I got uncomfortable saying, based on what I know, they didn't make it. Or judging people's actions as they're going to hell when they die. Now, I may say, man, based on what I see, it doesn't look like the light is in you. Based on what I see. But there's this idea of condemnation, condemning people for their actions. And in reality, we sin in ways that we could be condemned to. No matter who you respect, the godliest person that you know of, that you can think of, if you catch them at the right moment, the right time, the right period, you will see them act outside of the faith that they profess And technically, you could say, like, oh, man, these people are faking. There is no one, no one except for Jesus who you can't take the right moment of their life and say, look at this, look at them. Not one person. So this condemning people is only given to God because his condemnation, his evaluation, his judgment is truth. So why is that the standard when judging? Well, let's leave the passage for a minute and go to Revelation 12, 7 through 10. Here's what this passage says, and I quote. 
Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels brought forth, fought against the dragon. The dragon and his angels also fought, but he could not prevail, and there was no place for them in, the, in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was thrown out, was thrown out the ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the one who deceives the whole world. He was, he was thrown to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have now come because the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses him before our God day and night has been thrown down. Now listen to the language here. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. He's judging. He stands before God and condemns the brothers and sisters. The, the imagery is that he stands before God and accuses. Look, look, look at what Kurt did. Look at this. Look at what he did. Well, actually, a biblical image would be what he said about Job. Remember that? Biblical imagery. Hey, Satan, have you tried Job? Why would I? You give him everything. You, you protect him. Take some of that away from him. He's definitely going to sin against you. Okay. You can take his children and all his stuff, but don't touch him. Cool. Kills all of them. Everything he has. Destroys it. Comes back. God, Satan. What you into? Chilling. Have you tried Job? Of course he still trusts you because you ain't touch him. You do some harm to him, it's a wrap. This is the gangster translation. He does it, right? Satan accuses. Look at, look at this. Look at this dude. Look. He says he believes in you. Look. When Satan, when Jesus in Luke 22, 22 told Peter, Satan wants to sift you as wheat. He wants to condemn you. Look, this is what he does. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. And here's the ironic part. Satan is more sinful than everyone he accuses. In fact, he is the leading tempter of all people. So every sin that people commit spawns from him. So you stand before God and accuse people of doing things that you yourself do and revel in. You love it. And you have demons, millions of demons, however many, helping people do the same thing. How dare you accuse people when you do the same things? You promote it. You love it. It's who you are. So what does this mean? When we condemn other people and do the same things, it's satanic. It comes from a satanic mindset. We're imitating the devil. And so the language is strong. When you do that, you are storing up wrath for yourself. When God judges, when he condemns, it's truth. When you do it, it's a lie because you do the same thing. Now, mind you, he's not saying you don't judge a tree by the fruit that it bears. He's not saying sometimes you can't admonish someone for, not, for being idle. You can't bring correction to someone. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, how dare you condemn someone else? Condemn someone else. Because you got your own sin issues. Jesus also said it in a different way when he said, look, take the log out of your eye before you show your brother his speck. He said, listen, you better make that here. He also said in Matthew 18, 21 through 35, in the parable of the unmerciful servant, he said, wait a minute, you owe this dude like a billion dollars? And you're going to beat up this dude who owes you $500? The point of that narrative is your sins against God are way more than someone's sins against you. How dare you hold them accountable for their sins when the one that you owe to 
let you go free. You see, the theme is all throughout the Bible. It's just broken down in different ways, different forms. Doesn't mean we don't judge a tree by the fruit that it bears, but it means we better be careful in our judgment that we're not condemning people because there are things that we do that are worthy of condemnation. And that's the main concern. The people of God believe, the people who believe in God are judging the sins of the people who don't believe in God as if their believing in God gives them a pass when they sin. That's not how it works. You've heard me say this before. Grace doesn't lower the standard of holiness. It just forgives us for not meeting it. And this is a problem. This is a huge problem in the church and out of the church. Huge problem. You know, when Jesus came, he said, look, I didn't come to condemn the world, but to save it. And he left the church here to continue the saving work. But what the church has done is, is, is beginning the condemning work. You know, what's funny in, in uh, you've heard me say this before plenty of times, the first Corinthians five, Paul talks about this. He says, look, get rid of the sexually immoral, the idolatrous, the greed. The, all. He said, get rid of these people. He said, I don't mean the world. Otherwise, you'd have to go out of the world. He said, for what have I to do with judging the world, non-Christians, non-believers? He said, God judges them. Purge the evil from among you. Don't be around people who are believers that do these things. You got to be around people who are unbelievers. Otherwise, you'd have to be in another planet. You see, this theme is all over the scripture. Is the people of God judge the sins of people who don't know God as if their belief in God gives them a pass when they sin against God. And that's not how it works. That's not how it works. So he takes that seriously and he, and he addresses it head on in, in, in verse three. Do you really think any of you who judges those who do such things? Yet do the same thing will escape God's judgment? Or do you despise the riches of his kindness or strength and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? In other words, fam, do you realize that like God hasn't condemned you because he's being patient towards you, not because he's okay? Listen, God is not okay with our sin. He's just patient with our sin, giving us time to repent of our sin. Don't think for a moment that the sins that we do, that God's like, man, that's my son, I'm all right with it. That's my daughter. Like, I get it. No. He's like, no, nah, I'm, I'm patient with them. I'm not going to treat them as their sins deserve because I gave them faith. I chose them to believe in Jesus. Now, these questions, they're sobering questions. And the reason why is because they're not really questions. Do you really think any of you who do such things will that you will escape God's judgment? Or do you despise the riches and kindness and restraint and patience and not recognize? Those are not really questions. They seem they're in question form, but these are, these are, these are not like yes or no questions. These are uh-oh questions. They're not yeah or no. These are like uh, these are the questions that, are, that bring about conviction. That bring about, they're, not supposed, they're rhetorical like obvious, like, oh, no, I need to change. These are I need to change questions. These are the New Testament version of thou art the man. When Samuel was talking to David. 
He continues on with the logic. He says this in verse 6. He will repay each one according to his works, eternal life to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, but wrath, anger, wrath and anger to those who are self-seeking and disobey the truth while obeying unrighteousness. There will be affliction and distress for every human being who does well, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. But glory, honor and peace for everyone who does what is good, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For there is no favoritism with God. Now, the context here that he's talking about, he's saying a lot. He's basically saying that God, this is a crate, like verse six, he will repay each one according to his works is one of those phrases that you just read and you pass over, but it's so loaded theologically that you got to pause and be like, whoa, wait a minute. So he's saying he will repay each one for according to his works. All right, so the language here is taken from many places, but one of them is uh, Psalm 62 two. So this is one, one verse where it drives from the, the theme, the, the passage here, and it says this in Psalm 62, 12 says this. My screen just took off and just jumped. It says this, and faithful love belongs to you, Lord, for you repay each according to his works. Proverbs 24, 12. If I say you, if, if you say, but we didn't know about this, won't he who weighs hearts consider it? Won't he who protects your life know? Won't he repay a person according to his work? This is a, an amazing statement because what it's saying is that God is all-knowing. He's all-seeing, so he's omnipotent. He's omnipresent. And that God knows everything about everyone, so he's going to look at everyone and repay everyone according to their works only person that can do that is God. And think about the billions and billions and however many people have been alive that only God has the authority to condemn or free. He's going to repay everyone according to their works. This is an amazing statement about who God is, the authority of God, the sovereignty of God, the presence of God, the nature of God, that pay attention to all these things and repay people for what they've done. Now, on the one hand, these verses are supposed to bring terror to those of us who think that God's patience means God's acceptance of wrongdoing. That's not what this means. This is supposed to bring terror to those of us who think that. As a matter of fact, there's a phrase that he says in verse 8. He says this in verse 8. But wrath and anger to those who are self-seeking, and disobey the truth while obeying unrighteousness. Remember last week we talked about worship. You can't worship God and worship an idol because worship contains two main functions. What? It, it contains morality, right? So we obey, like what we believe is right and wrong will be connected to what we worship. And intimacy, building a relationship with. We want to have a relationship with the thing that we worship. So this phrase, obeying unrighteousness, in seed form is getting at this reality. We're all, listen, all people worship. I love that he said obeying unrighteousness. All people are people of worship because we're created in God's image. We talked about this last week. This is what makes me different from my cat. My cat worships me because I give him these snacks. 
He loves, he loves everybody else in the family. And he jumps up and is on me and chills with me when everyone else is asleep or when he wants some snacks. And so I give him these snacks and he's purring the whole time, just eating these from my hand. And then when I'm done, he'll look at me like, man, what, what you doing? I'm like, there's no mas. Teaching my cat Spanglish. No mas. But he can't worship, though. But human beings made in God's image, we're always worshiping. So the question isn't, do we worship? Atheists worship. The question is, who do you worship? Who do you, who are you intimate with? Who do you obey? Obeying unrighteousness is a fundamental reality that people obey unrighteousness. They worship. They worship the wrong things. Everyone worships. And there will come a moment when what you worship will be come with its rewards. The intimacy and your morality will, will, will pay dividends at some point. If you worship the Lord, oh man, blessings. Mercy. Grace. I mean, the passage says it. Glory. Uh, verse 10, glory, honor, and peace to everyone who does what is good. First to the Jew and then to the, also to the Greek. And he says, for there is no favoritism with God. From a statement that sounds like favoritism. First to the Jew, then to the Greek. That's not favoritism. It's, it's precedence, not preference. It's precedence because God looked in humanity, chose the Jewish people, the Israelites, to, to bring the Savior out of that people. So he, he comes from the Jews. They were the ones to get the, the, the word of God. They were the ones to get the savior of the world coming from the Jewish people. So he says first to them because they were the first ones. They were the chosen ones to understand God's law. And they were the only they were the chosen ones to live amongst God in the flesh. So it's not pre, it's precedence, not preference. It's not favoritism first to the Jew. And then honestly, if, if it talks about being punished, I don't want to be first. I don't want to be there at all. There's going to come a moment when all of us will stand before the Lord and he will repay us according to our works. And there are some people who what they worship that was not him will receive the, the penalty for that intimacy and that morality. And there were those of us who will fight who are fighting to worship him. And he says, listen, I'm going to repay you for that. I'm going to pay you for that. This verse reminds us that God is watching and that he sees us. He sees the people who are not fighting or who are fighting for the wrong things. And he sees the people who are fighting to persevere and trust in him. This is a big deal. It's huge. This brings a lot of understanding about who God is. He continues with his argument going to verse 12. Remember, we're just, we're just going through this. We're hitting this at like 15,000 feet. He continues with his argument and he says, it's all who sin without the law will also perish without the law and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For the hearers of the law are not righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. So this is when I believe he's transitioning to talk about, to the Jews specifically. I don't think he started with the Jews in chapter 2, the beginning of chapter 2. I think this is the transition point 
of when now he's starting to address the Jews who were in the midst. Remember, the Jews were kicked out of Rome in AD 49 by Claudius. They come back five years later to a church that's already established. So Jews are coming back and, and being a part of a church that was largely Gentile. And so there's, this church has an amazing dynamic. It's very diverse ethnically. And so I believe now he's addressing those who are Jews by bringing up the law. Because the Gentiles wouldn't know as much about the law apart from the fact that they're not supposed to keep it because they have faith in Jesus Christ. So he talks about the law for, the, for, for verse 14. So when Gentiles who do not by nature have the law do what the law demands, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Their consciences confirm this. Their competing thoughts either accuse or even excuse them. On the day when God judges what people have kept secret, according to my gospel through Jesus Christ. So let me just say something about that real quick. This is what he's getting at. This is what he's saying. People are made in the image of God. Listen, you don't have to be justice, righteousness. These are all just these are all things that come with being made in God's image. When you're little, before you even know what right and wrong really is, and you're two years old, and, you know, my kids, they would be crying. I'd be like, what happened? And they'd be like, he took my thing. Like, they knew this was wrong. This was, this was they, couldn't, they couldn't even say the word justice. They just knew that was wrong. So what did you do? I hit them. They understood justice. They understood vengeance. They understood all these things without having been taught. They understood these things, that this is not wrong, this isn't fair. They understood that intuitively. Why? Because all people are made in God's image. And even the people who are not Christian, this is where all these religions come from. People understand justice, right, wrong. Even if they're different levels, there's, there's, a, there's a degree of consciousness that, that God has placed, a, a right and wrong, you, you're made in his image. And so all humanity has to some degree, and sure, there are deficiencies, right? There are going to be people who have brain deficiencies and things will be a little bit challenging. But ex exceptions to a rule don't negate the rule. So there's this idea that God is saying, listen, even when Gentiles who don't who never received the law of God, which we'll talk about that in a second, they do. They act according to the law. They prove that it's in their hearts. They prove that they have a conscience. They prove that humanity made in God's image can still do things based on their own conscience given to them by God. It may not save them, but at the very least, people disobey even their own consciences outside of the gospel. And God can judge people based on their own conscience, even if they never heard the gospel. Because there are many people that died and didn't. So how does he evaluate them? People say, well, is that fair? Well, he can evaluate you by your own conscience. So if you knew lying was wrong and this was wrong, then you did it a ton of times. That's a deeper conversation, which this, this level doesn't beg us to, to, to dive into. But let me start with this. What is the actual law? Well, I'm not going to assume that this is all sin without the law will also perish without the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For the hearers of the law are not righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. So what is the law? Well, there's a couple different ways that you could talk about what the law is. Some people would say it's the law of Moses, right? So it's the Pentateuch, you know, the first, you know, the, the, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. And, and people 
kind of classified as moral, civil, and ceremonial, these, these different ways to break down what the law is. There's, there's different laws and how you relate to, to good and evil, and there's ceremonial laws and how you sacrifice to animals and what you're supposed to do and how the temple, and there's civil laws and how you govern a society. Like, there's all these different laws, and that when people say the law of Moses, when they talk about the law, sometimes they're referring to that. Sometimes people condense it when they mean the law. They mean the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments is essentially a succinct way to understand the moral code of God in all the Old Testament. It's a succinct way to understand what God morally requires. It doesn't get at the ceremonial. It doesn't talk about how to build a temple, when you sin, how to sacrifice to an animal. It doesn't talk about what the priest is supposed to do. It doesn't talk about how you, how you manage society and how you go. Those things, but it talks about how you morally act to God. And that some people would consider that the law. That's what, that's what we're talking about. And some people consider the moral commands in the whole Old Testament, which would include like Proverbs and stuff like that. So there are varying ways that the law is described and how people talk about it. But in a nutshell, the law is essentially direct instructions from God on how to believe and behave. That's what the law is, especially in the Old Testament. What do you believe and how do you behave? That's the law, succinctly described. And this came, this began with God choosing Abraham and then Abraham's grandson, Jacob, having 12 sons, including two grandsons, and, and them establishing themselves as a nation of Israel in Genesis 50 on down. You see this play out on down where they, they come to Egypt and then they grow and grow and grow in Egypt and then become so large that they get. But they're defined by who their patriarch is. And it's each of these each of these individuals who are Jacob, who are Abraham's great, great, his great, great grandchildren and Jacob's sons. And then they're his grandchildren, all of them over time, over hundreds of years, become this nation of Israel. And so you get from Jacob to Moses. The, 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 the people who are going to get the laws established. Then, then God sends Moses, and you get from Moses in Exodus 3, when he calls Moses to the law that begins in Exodus 20, after he takes them out and they become his own people. And then you get this disobedience to that law from, from Exodus, essentially 21, until Jesus comes in Matthew 1. And the law is the main way that people understand their obedience to God. In Jesus' day, it was the dominant quality, identifying quality of people who believe in, in God, in Yahweh. The law, the Mosaic law. Jesus comes and says, listen, no one can fulfill the law in the way God intended. You can't. This is the reason why you keep having to kill animals and sacrifice so Jesus comes, he fulfills the law perfectly for the sake of all humanity. He dies brutally instead of all humanity. Then he rises from the dead, proving that his, his sacrifice, his obedience was actually received by God. And here's why. Because death is the result of sin. Right? If one cannot die, then one cannot be connected to sin. So Jesus coming from the dead Rising himself. It wasn't like somebody said, Jesus, come out. He did that to Lazarus. 
He brought back a, a, a young man in Luke 7. But no one brought Jesus back but Jesus. So the reason why his resurrection is so important is that it proves that he didn't sin and that God accepted his perfect obedience on our behalf. If Jesus never rose from the dead, we would have a serious problem. We would have a serious problem proving that he was no different than any moral teacher. And that's the whole point of Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 15. If he doesn't rise from the dead, then we're, pit we're to be pitied of all people. Because we have no confidence that we, can put a, that we can put our confidence in him as the ultimate reason why our sins are forgiven. We can't. So we'll all be killing doves and, and all types of animals. Bulls and goats. This is Hebrews 9 and 10. Jesus comes and does this perfectly and says, the law no longer is the standard for who God's people are. It's faith in Jesus. But after Jesus goes, Paul and the church still have to deal with thousands of years of believing one way versus now. And there was a lot of pushback. I mean, think about this from a political perspective. Right now, there are many people who are fearful of the possibility of socialism coming to America versus capitalism, what we've always known to be true. We're only a couple hundred, we're 400 and what, 13, 14 years old. And that's all we've really known. And the fear of a different, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't be concerned about it, but the fear of another governing system is enough for some people to, as Mike prayed, storm the Capitol even in hopes to capture some of the people who were in there and potentially do them harm in fear they're ushering them in. Well, imagine I mean, if we'll do that for that, imagine thousands of years of thinking, this is what makes me right before God. And now somebody says that doesn't count anymore. The law was good and it was there for a time. But in order for you to really benefit from the law, you got to live it perfectly. You see, God's standard has always been sinless. This is James. If you break in one commandment, you've broken them all. God's standard has always been sinless. Jesus comes, fulfills that, and now God's standard is sinless. You see, Jesus was sinless, and now we sin less by faith in him. And his sinlessness, God sees us as if we're sinless because we believe in Jesus. And the way we prove that, the way we walk that out is that we sin less. So the standard is always sinless, but we believe in the one who was sinless, and now we sin less. This is what he's getting at. If you who have the law, you sin against the law, then it doesn't matter that you know the truth. I mean, who could stand in a court of law right now and say, well, I know that that robbing a bank is wrong, but I just, I did it anyway. Well, it doesn't mean like, oh, oh, because you knew that it was wrong, you get points for that. No, you actually get punished for that even more, right? You get punished even more because you knew that this was wrong. Scripture says that those, those who know will be beaten with many blows. The Bible talks about James 3, teachers, you shouldn't, you, not many of you should presume to be teachers. Why? Because you'll be judged with a stricter judgment. Excited for that moment. In other words, pastors who teach 
are going to be called, are going to be judged with a stricter judgment than those who, who are taught. Because we're the ones saying this is what you're supposed to do. By default, we're the ones supposed to be living it. Having the law and sinning under the law makes you worse than people who don't have the law. Especially if someone who never heard the Ten Commandments is living it better than you who had the Ten Commandments. In our day and age, it would be like saying someone who's just a really mild-mannered, gracious, humble person. We're like, man, you'd make a good Christian. <laughs> you ever compare? You know it's bad when you're comparing yourself to a non-believer. You ever done that? You just met somebody on your job and they're just gollier than you. And you're the Christian. And you like, die. They're more patient than me, more humble than me. They actually resist gossiping and talking about people. And I'm up here like, shoot, I know that's right. This is what it's getting at. You see, God is always going to expose hypocrisy. Because he cares about it, particularly among his people. He'll expose it. And I'll be honest. I think that's what he's doing right now in the church. I think I think people of I think people who typically been on the conservative right will genuinely think we're different than the left because we don't do the things that they do when we don't when we riot. We don't riot like they do. That's what that's that's the going narrative. We don't do what they do. And there's been a moral superiority that they've had. And to some degree, it's like, you're right. They don't do that stuff. And then all of a sudden, I mean, you do something that these people have never done. These people never have done this. You stormed the Capitol. It hasn't been breached since 1812. The more, and then the people killed, got killed in that thing. And they weren't coming in there just to protest and take a lectern and take selfies. They were coming in there to do harm to people. The death toll was low only because people were ushered out. So you know what God is doing? He's exposing. Listen, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That moral superiority that you don't riot the way the people on the left do is blown to smithereens. Because when it's something you care about or something that you're worried about, you will do the same things as those people. And these are believers that are out there doing this. This isn't just the world. These are believers. You see, all of us, all of us, all of us before God are on the same ground. On the same ground. And as much as I think it's crazy what's happening, I love that he's exposing that. So people can hush up and stop acting like what you, who you vote for is more important than who you believe in. We're all susceptible to do things we never thought we would do. In the name of Jesus for some people, when we don't get the things that we really want or we're really afraid of losing something that we believe we have. This verse speaks to the church today. You who judge others for doing it, look at what they do. Look at that. They do this. They do that. They do that. You was right out there front and center. Doing things that those people knew better than. The people, uh, that's a different conversation. I'll save it for the podcast. We'll conclude with this. Oh, I want to say one thing about this because he, he makes a point in this passage. And we'll conclude here. At the end of the passage, it's verses 17 through 29. We'll look at this really quickly, but there's one phrase I, I, I want to point out that, that goes to what I was just talking about. Actually, I wanna, I'll just say it now, then I'll explain some of the other things. What I think is happening right now, what I think we should be concerned about, what I think is missing 
is, is what he says here. I'm going to jump to this in verse 24. He says, as for it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. You know, if the church, if the church brought, not just solid rock, if we really, really took this phrase and said, let's, let's, let's evaluate if that's true of us. What's missing in the church is not who did you vote for or if you believe systemic racism is real or if you, that's not the issue. The issue is do we care about the name of God and the way that his people are representing it? And if we did, I think all of us, left, right, middle, I think we would all be like, man, if we cared about the reputation of God, it would be a totally different thing in the church. What we care about is our own reputations, our own ministries. How are you a Christian to have a ministry named after yourself? This is the type of stuff that's just pervasive. What we care about is not God's reputation. We don't care about that. We only care about what affects us, our theological framework and those who agree with us or our political framework and those who agree with that. What if we all just said, you know what? Let's just for a second not care about anything but the reputation of God as seen through his people and allow this verse and other things to just humble us and say, you know what? Not maybe because I've said or done something, but just looking if I care about the reputation of God and I care about the church of which Jesus clearly prayed in John 17, 20 and 21, that I pray that they would be one as you and I are one. He clearly cares about this, that we're connected and that there is a sense of God's glory that's outside of mine. Yeah, we understand it intellectually. I'm not talking about intellectual identification with doxology and glory. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about specific from individual to communal. See, we got individual, rugged individual Christianity. We got that down. We got that. My relationship with God, my sins, and if I haven't done it, then it doesn't matter. So if I haven't been racist, then anything about racism doesn't matter to me. If I haven't done this, I haven't done that, cool, I'm good here. But what about the reputation of the church, though? You see, rugged individualism is not all of Christianity. There's also rugged communalism. There's a sense where we're supposed to care about, we're supposed to grieve when we find out Christians in Pakistan are being slaughtered. But many of us will just skip past that article. Hey, what's happening here? Let me get this recipe real quick. Who's gay? Who's not? What's Justin Bieber doing? Who's talking about social justice? Who's, who's a white supremacist? All these things, we, we care about all that stuff. And then we think if we don't do it, then we're good. And we stand back in judgment of people who do, yet we do things that are not maybe what they do, that we could be judged for the same thing. The passage is relevant to what we're experiencing right now today. And this verse, I think, is condemning of all of us. All of us, not because we've done everything, every sin listed, because we probably care less about the communal aspect, the community of the church. I'm not talking about your local church. I'm not talking about people who are reformed or agree with your doctrine. I'm talking about do we care about the reputation of God among the church? That's what's missing. That's what's missing. 
So I, uh, you know what's funny? I want to read this verse. I didn't give this to you, Phil, but I, I want to read a verse just to highlight this. This. I've been, I was the Lord just reminded me of this, and I was like, "Wow, this is pretty crazy, Lord." And it's uh, let me make sure I got it right. So it's 2 Timothy 2, 14. Put this up, Phil, if you can. 2 Timothy 2, 14. I want us to read this. This is a great, a great rebuke of what you see happening in the church. I'm not going to talk about the culture because the culture is going to be itself, right? We don't, 1 Corinthians 5, we don't judge the world. 2 Timothy 2, 14 says this. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to fight about words. This is useless and leads to the ruin of those who listen. For the last seven years, this has been more important than the last three years. This has been what I would say is the makeup of many in the church. Fighting about words. What does cultural Marxism mean? What does systemic racism mean? What does this mean? Let's let's attack all these words and let's prove that we are different and whoever agrees with our definition of this and that and truth, that's the real issue. And it misses the whole bigger picture. God's glory, his name is being blasphemed among the Gentiles. Why would anyone want to trust Christians and Christian values when we can't even trust them ourselves? We're arguing over words that's useless and leads to the ruin of those who listen. And any of us can look at the last three or four years and see that it's ruined significantly the church. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of stupid stuff like this. And I failed. I've done it. Some of you may not have. I've done that, this part. But it's just like, what are we doing? What are we doing? There's no, there's no foundation, no real God's glory is the most important. There's no man. The name of Jesus is like means nothing to people. Where's that? Whatever, whatever side you're on, where is that? This is what's missing. This is what the Lord cares about. Arguing over words. Who cares anymore? When do we say, you know what? Man, I care about the communal aspect of the church and not just my local church and not my D group, but just the church. Having said that, starting next Sunday, we're going to be praying for just the different churches in our area and across the world every Sunday. Every time there's announcements, we're going to pray because I failed miserably in helping our church do this. I failed miserably in helping us be more communal. I care about the community here. I've done that. We, me and Mike, we'll, we'll, we'll die. That's a hill we'll die on. But I failed. I failed you. And I ask you for forgiveness. Because the communal aspect of the church is what's gone in America. And so now we're just fighting over words fighting over things that are not biblical. And we care more about being right than we care about the Christ.
May God continue to have mercy on all of us. He says this, beginning of verse 17, I said this and then I'm done. Now, if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are superior, being instructed from the law, and if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the ignorant, a teacher of the immature, having the embodiment of the knowledge of the truth in the law, you then who teach another, don't you teach, do you teach, don't you teach yourself? You who preach, you must not steal. Do you steal? You who say you must not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? You who detest idols. Do you rob temples? You see, this is why I said I don't think he was talking about the Jews coming in because he's making the same argument he made in verses one through five. Now, Paul does repetition, but I don't think that's what he's doing here. I think he came into chapter two talking to just, I think, maybe still Gentiles or believers in general. But then he's specifically now talking to the Jews. You are the people who have the law. You're supposed to be as a guide to the blind. You boast in God, and yet you have the law, and you sin in the same ways. So he goes, if you're uncircumcised, if you, and, and he gets at something more significant that we're going to pick up on next week. But, that's, but he makes the same argument. When he says, now, if you call yourself a Jew, you're doing the same thing I was talking about in verses 1 through 5. But it's worse because you have the law of God. Listen. It's worse when the people of God do what the world does. It's worse because we know the truth. And I'm going to end with this. This is what I've said. I said this in a meeting, a, 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 a conversation. A guy was talking to me and he said, listen, slave, slavery has always been in the world. There's still slavery now. Why are you making slavery in America like it's different, like it's always been around. I'm not saying it's good, but it's always been around. You know what I said? Because the people who allowed it to take place were largely the church. The church is complicit. It wasn't like the church was unified against it. You can't have a Christian nation do what the world does and then say, well, it was okay because the... No, it's always worse when the church does it. Why? Because we know better. They don't have the law of God. First Corinthians 2.14, the man without the spirit of God does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they're spiritually discerned. But the church knows the word of God, so it's always worse when we do it. It's always worse because we know better, and we're supposed to be the example. It's supposed to be the light on the hill, if you will. But that light bulb isn't supposed to be black. So we'll pick up here next week on circumcision and work our way through chapters three and four. If there are no questions, I'll pray. And then we'll. Well, we do have uh, a few questions. All right. Um, <clears throat> so let what Pastor Kurt said, um, if you thinking about a question um we don't have that many so please uh, get them in quickly um, thank you for your message the first two questions um relate i think these both of them are from an evangelistic perspective so um the first one is uh the question is when someone who approves 
of, of sin, like, for example, like LGBTQ, um, and they, um, and they used, the, um, you know, this Matthew 7, 1, judge not lest you be judged verse, um, and, excuse me, I'm sorry. Um, uh, basically, how do you uh, process the Matthew 7, 1 when someone uses it to excuse themselves, but you also are aware of Romans 1 and 2? How do you help them? How do you relate both to them? Like you're not trying to judge them, but you're, you know, you're trying to help them to see that just something doesn't please God. Right. So, I, you know, with stuff like that, I have the same answer for stuff like that. And it's, it's this. You have to define what faithfulness looks like to you. And what I mean is questions like that are well-intentioned and they're very good and I appreciate them. But what they're kind of getting at is how do I help a person see that they're wrong in this and change their mind? And that's a good question. But the answer is you just, you can't. You can't. And if, and if you think faithfulness is convincing a person of error, you'll be discouraged. As a pastor, I counsel, I preach, I do many things. Well, I got areas of my own life I can be discouraged by. You know, it's, just, it's a reality. So I can't convince anyone of anything. The Spirit of God has to do that. So you can't measure faithfulness by how they receive what you say. You can only measure it by, did you say what you should have said? So having said that, I would say, hey, listen, let's, I, if, especially if they're a person willing to do this, I would be like, hey, let's, let's look at Matthew 7, because actually if you continue reading, he doesn't say don't judge. He just says, take the log out of your eye and then go show your brother his speck. So people act like the verse stops at verse 3, but it has a 4 and a 5. And a, so one, I would start to say, hey, listen, well, I don't think it's saying you can't judge. I think it's talking about a way to judge. But I, so I need to recognize that I have my own issues too and let me not come to this person all self-righteous. I mean, this is what he's getting at. Look, you got sin issues too. You got a log in your eye. You need to see your sin as greater than another person's sin and recognize that you've been, you know, before you go show them their sin and act like how you carry yourself is smaller than how they, what you're seeing in them. That's essentially what he's getting at. He said, look, but he didn't say don't, don't judge people. He said, Take the log out first and then go show your brother his spec. So I would, let's finish the passage and then I would, you know, walk them through, you know, Romans 1 and 2 and Romans 1 in particular and then 1 Timothy, you know, 1 and then you can, you know, I mean, there's a, there's a, th I mean, that's a, we're, we're going to end up coming back to this issue because it's, I think this issue is, is about to be dominant in our culture. So we're going to end up coming back to how to think through this issue and communicate and how to really see what the Bible says about it and believe that. So, But I would just say, yeah, make sure your faithfulness isn't measured by how they respond, but measured by what you, what you say. And if they don't agree with you, then you can only be faithful to say that. Um, the uh, next person, I uh, said so there were two that were kind of from an evangelistic perspective. Uh, the next one, uh, the person is uh, ministering to and um, uh, someone who's been church hurt uh, someone mm -hmm. who's hurt includes experiencing um, judgment and condemnation from the church. I'm not sure what the background of that is, but the member who texted in said that um, 
from what they can see and what the person says. Um, this person wants to believe that, you know, that God is love, um, but they just struggle with like what they've experienced from the church and what they read in scripture, but they're willing to go through scripture. So uh, they're asking, could you share any passages or verses uh, to share with someone who um, is grappling with the delicate balance between judgment and discernment um, and that not knowing how to, you know, navigate between those is in our members' perspective, it's inhibiting the person from a relationship with Christ, from the kingdom. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So without knowing what the judgments and condemnations were, uh, I don't know what was said to the person. So on one level, you're, my hands are kind of tied because, you know, it could, cause, and then because it could be, well, it wasn't judgment, it was true. You just didn't like how it was said, right? So you could come off judgmental in your tone or whatever, but it's still truth, you know? So because, without knowing that, here's what I would say. So when, you, when you're talking to someone who has church hurt and has been through some things, you need to think of the kind of input you give them in terms of themes, right? So, so in the biblical counseling class, uh, what I taught them was a theology of fill in the blank. So some people, like if someone's struggling with what they're going through, I might have said, listen, they need a theology of suffering just to understand the place of suffering in the Bible. They need a theology of forgiveness. They don't understand the place of forgiveness. In the they need a theology of... So think of it in terms of like themes or theologies of. So that person, based on what you said, what you, the question, they need a theology of their identity in Christ, right? They need to know like, okay, I need, they don't have a firm foundation. So the church hurt is things that were said to them that hurt them, the condemnation they feel. Whenever you hear that, that's taking someone's identity in Christ, their confidence in their identity in Christ. Now, again, I don't know what their issues are to know if there may be some truth to that, to that percept, what you perceive as condemnation. Of, but in general, I think you want to think themes of, so like you've heard me, one of my favorite passages, 1 Timothy 2, 3, 2 Timothy 2, 13. For if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. 1 John 2, 1. Uh, little children, I'm writing this to you that you may not sin, but if you do sin, he is an advocate for the Father. You know, there's, there's, you want to take them to passages that highlight this is your identity. I mean, Romans 8, you know, the second of Romans 8, 8, 8, 18 to 32. I mean, that whole section is just like, that one is a gold mine, right? So you want to take them to passages that confirm their identity in Christ. And then, and then I would say, you may know this and you, you may not have listened in the class, but I would, you know, I try, if I'm counseling them, I want to know like what was said and what was their validity and what was said. Because it could be, man, you don't want to, for lack of a better way of saying this, you don't want to give someone false hope when they need real help. So you don't want to tell someone, oh, man, you know, you're good, you're right, you're right, and they're living sexually immoral. They're living in ways that are immoral, and they got called out, and they're just offended that they got called out. So again, not that balance has to be there for you, the counselor, and, once you, and, and then once you figure that out, you can maybe help them understand because there's no unpardonable sin, right? Well, there is one, but most people don't commit it. I don't think believers commit unpardonable sin because you just, you, the spirit of God is in you and you ain't going to blaspheme the spirit. So I think, I think, 
That's what I would do. I would, I would think themes of what we call in biblical counseling a theology of. Sometimes people just need a theology of identity in Christ. You need a theology of suffering. You need a theology of forgiveness. You need a theology of heaven. You need a theology of perseverance. I mean, we just forget, you know, we just forget these things. So, so um, I think uh, this question actually has layered. Multi-layered? Yes, sir. Um, and, it, and it starts off, uh, I'm, I'm assuming, I'm going to assume that um, the person, you know, they heard what you said, they're embracing it. So they start off with the question, but what next? If we see relatives on Facebook hating on others in the name of Christianity and politics, how do we respond and be burdened but not judgmental and consumed with politics? Do we unfollow them? How should we pray? What should, what should the cry of our heart be? Um, do, we, do we call them out? How do we start that interaction? So a great couple of questions, a couple of things. Let me start with the last one. Do we call them out? I, I think if you have a relate, so I don't, I don't, if I have a relationship with people, I'm going to say something. Now, you all know this. I'm a pastor here, and that's my first priority. But I came to this church with a platform bigger than Solid Rock, and I still have that. So when I tweet and post things sometimes, I'm not posting as just Pastor Kurt. Sometimes I'm posting as Kurt Kennedy, the, the personality that people are familiar with from my podcast, music, and things like that. So I might engage with people a little differently because they engage with me on a I kind of know you because I followed your music and what you say on part. But for the for the standard rule, though, is I don't approach. I don't get into those kinds of conversations with people, first of all, online or if I don't know them, if I don't know them. Like, I mean, you, you know, unless you post on my wall and you're trying to cause ruckus, I'm like, hey, listen, can you take this on your wall and do it? Like, you don't need to. I know it's a it's still my intellectual property. Right. I know it's a it's free to do that, but I might do that. But. So I would address people if I have a relationship with them. And then I think I even give grace to that. Like, you know, people like there are people in our church who I think post stuff on Facebook and stuff like that. And it's like, well, why they post that? But I know them enough and there's grace enough to be like, man, I ain't I ain't on the hey, hey man on March such and such on, on on January 12th. Man, you posted this. What does that mean? Hey, how you doing? How are things going? Yeah, I'm looking at your post on January 8th. And you said, I'm not doing that. I'm not Facebook police. You know, I'm not doing that. But we you know, we see. Sometimes I'll be like, huh, what does that even mean? You know, because I think sometimes people post stuff and not realize how people will take it based on who you are. So it's like, OK, are you talking about us? Are you talking about this? Are you talking about? So but I think for the most part, I don't really engage in, especially not publicly. So what I would do is I think one you I think one, I think if someone's a Christian and they're being divisive to people online, what do you do if they're a relative or something? I think you do call them out. So I, the issue isn't do I, the issue is how do I, right? I think we have to always let the scripture, the scripture, I post a lot more verses online because it's like, listen, we can go back and forth and it's always what you think versus what they think. Okay, so how do you process this? Whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them. How do you, pro even if you don't always keep it, listen, truth is truth, whether you and I obey it or not. So that, that Matthew 7, 12 so whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them is standard, whether I do it or not. And if I see someone online, it's like, hey, bro, so how do you how do you measure that with this? Or how do you measure this with brotherly love and affection from Second Peter one verses five through seven? How do you measure that with this? How do you you know, I would bring those things up, but you have to use the Bible because if you don't, then people get offended because, listen, 
we live in a culture that has stimulated being triggered. Like it is, this is why my first single from my album Reporting Live and video was triggered. It was a song explaining, and particularly the racial dynamic of being triggered. We live in a culture where being triggered is, is almost as normal as breathing. And so we have to understand the times that we're in. People will be offended quickly on many levels, and it takes a while to, to get them to see like, whoa, calm down. So you might have to tell a relative, hey, listen, I'm not your enemy. I'm not your enemy. Sometimes you might even have to preface it with a brief encouragement. Hey, I just want to say this. I appreciate you. There's a lot of things that you say that I really agree with, and I'm grateful that you say them because they help me think. Would you mind, though, if I, if I, because you said this comment, and I'm not sure what you, you know, and go in that direction. Sometimes you just have to, but I think, yeah, I think you should say it 100%. I think, but you have to use the Bible, which many of us sometimes forget to do. And we just kind of go back and forth. Well, what about this? And we get into what aboutisms. Well, what about this? And what about that? What about that? And then we're then we find ourselves in 2 Timothy 2, 14, arguing over words and stuff. And it, it doesn't bear any fruit. So. This question is another one about interacting with, with people. Um, actually, this one is about churches. So uh, the question is, how do we maintain unity with the church? when there are churches that allow and applaud things that do not glorify God? Do we rebuke those churches to try to bring them back under the, under the direction of God's word, or do we denounce those churches entirely since they are misusing God's word and leading people into sin? So again, this is like a sort of a rule for me. There's a lot of churches that we know of and a lot of theologies that are sinful. Like we could sit here and go after the prosperity gospel all day, right? We could go after fundamentalism, I think, all day. You can go after uh, woke people, what you call woke and, and, and focusing on race all day, do that all day. The question is why? Why, why, why should we do that? Like what relationship do I have with these people? See, I think the problem, like, and again, here's the thing. We look at scripture sometimes. We separate the communal aspect from, we look at the action and not the communal aspect that was a part of it. So let's, let me give an example. Galatians 2, people use this all the time to call out other people, right? Galatians 2, Paul steps to Peter because Peter was eating with Gentiles. The Judaizers come, James, Jesus' brother, and they come. And then Peter gets a little fear of man and he backs away from eating with the Gentiles because Jews and Gentiles aren't supposed to eat together. But in Christ, they eat together. So he backs away. Barnabas follows him. Paul corrects him in front of everyone. And he explains that in the letter. But Paul had a relationship with Peter. And Paul saw that through the relationship, you're doing damage to people who even Barnabas was led astray, he said. So your, your, your example, and he also corrected him because he knew you have sound doctrine. See, people forget that. The Bible says also don't correct a fool according to his folly or that if you correct someone who's a fool, they won't listen. They won't appreciate it. It says correct a righteous man because he like, faithful are the wounds of a friend, right? But an enemy blows up. There's an idea that like from Scripture that like you correct people who believe truth because they'll respond to that. You don't correct people who don't believe truth because they'll ignore that. 
I think sometimes we correct people just because we're offended at what they're saying. And then all honesty, we're not, we don't really care about them or the church or this and that. We care about how we're affected by what, or we're joining the bandwagon of, of correction to other people. It's the new theme. It's the new thing to correct white supremacy in the church. It's the new thing to correct wokeism in the church. And so let's build a platform on that for what? You don't even know the people that you're correcting. I watch people build platforms on social media mocking other pastors whom you've never said a cold word to. Well, I reached out on Twitter. This guy has a million followers. Why is he going to respond to you? So again, I think when we're talking about correcting other people, if I don't know those folks, I ain't correcting your church. If I see somebody online posting something, here's when I will correct something another church does when it affects our church. Because I don't know you. I don't have time. Now, if I know someone and I got buddies and I'm like, fam, what are you doing? What are you, 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 you cross. There's a relational dynamic. Like I care about the reputation of the church, but some things don't call me to correct specifically that. I need to go to the Lord. What I can't say to them, I'll say to him, Lord, please have mercy. You know, this is your rep. I was praying that this morning. Praying that this is why I was passionate about this, because I'm affected by this. As the Lord is showing me this, I'm affected by it. I'm affected by it. I failed in it. I'm affected by where the church is at. It's like, man, I care more about proving that I'm right and coming up with clever, pithy ways to tweet things than I do sometimes about the reputation of God. And it's a monumental task to think that way. So, yeah, I think if you got a relationship with someone, say it. But I'm not going to just be, because you could do that all day. When is there never not sinful churches to correct? You could just be on Twitter all day like, here I am. And that's what people do. Facebook community church is real. And there are too many bishops and too many elders in that church. There's not enough congregants. There's too many elders and deacons and bishops and apostles in that church. Facebook community church is a heretic. It's a heresy. God cares about community relationships. Most of the correction that you'll see happening is about relationships. Or Jesus uniquely correcting the Pharisees because you destroyed what the law of God was intended to do so much so that even when I'm doing significant miracles that prove that I'm the Messiah, you and others think I'm not. That's why Jesus said, look, if you don't believe me, believe the miracles that you see. What demon is raising people from the dead and turning the blind, giving them sight? No, demons kill people and make them blind. So again, it's just, I think we just, because we're aware of more because of social media, we feel our obligation is to speak to this and the third, but I don't know these people. Now, if I get invited somewhere and they ask me questions and they're in error, I'm going to say something. Next Tuesday, I'll be in a, supposed to be, supposed to be right now, in a debate with Vody Bauckham, Tim Dunk, Tim, Tim, uh, Tim Brindle, uh, Doug Logan, a bunch of us talking about race issues in the church and all this stuff. Looking forward to it. There are going to be things that we're all brothers. There are going to be things that we disagree with. But, that, but that's the context for that. So we're going to push back on things that are said. Totally fine. But I'm not going to go looking for these brothers online, see what they tweet, and then call them out for nothing. It's like, so I think, again, it's communal. Like, I don't have a relationship with these people. So I think we're just quick to go at things, not because we actually... This is the thing, examine my motive, examine your motive. Like, why are you, why do you feel like you need to address this? Is it the reputation of the church you're really worried about? And then if that's the case, then go to the person who can clearly do something about it, the Lord. If I'm quicker to correct online what I see, less than I am to pray, then I need to, 
I need to check and see if my motives for doing so are about, it, it, you're getting on my nerves because of what you're emphasizing. And that's not necessarily biblical either. It's a great question. These are all ways that I failed significantly. So every answer is just like, yep, I ain't do that. Yep, I need to do that more. Yep. Being a pastor is so much fun. We're going to add to the fun with this question right here. Uh, this person says, I struggle with trusting people who I feel have acted wrongly towards me and others. With God's help, I, I, I can pray for those people and treat them respectfully. But I would be lying if I said that in my heart I trust them. Obviously, I don't want to be someone who condemns people, Christian or non-Christian, um, when I am vividly aware of God's grace. So how do I biblically work to reestablish trust with those people? Do you have any advice for me moving forward? Wonderful question. Yeah, so I would say I'm going to simplify this because it's, and again, I don't know what you mean by don't trust, right? So that, that, that could mean a lot of things here. You have to understand when I hear these things, I think as a counselor and the words have meaning and words mean different things. So you could be like, I don't trust them, but you're actually bitter or, or resentful towards them. There's a number of things that that could mean, right? So let me just say this. I think the, I, I used this passage earlier. You need to really deeply meditate on sort of the, a theology of forgiveness. Now, it doesn't mean, that, let, me, let me rephrase that. Let me, let me qualify that, I mean. I'm not saying because you don't trust them, you haven't forgiven them. I don't know what that trust means for you. I think there's wisdom in being cautious around people who hurt you, who have hurt you. No question. I stand by that. I think there's wisdom. And, and again, it's complicated depending on the relationship. What I mean, though, is you need to make sure that, that you are meditating, you have a knowledge of. So Matthew 18, 21 through 35, it's just a great, I mentioned it in the message. The parable of the unmerciful servant. Now, again, this isn't accusing you of that. It's just I don't know what you mean by trust. But I want to make sure that I recognize, listen, we, there's this idea. Not everyone thinks this way, but I think it's embedded in a lot of Christians. I find myself having to help counsel people through what I call a theology of suffering or a theology of being sinned against. Like this is a, this is a fallen world. And there's this idea that churches, pastors, like I'm not, listen, I'm going to sin against you sometimes. I don't, I'm not intending to, but I'm sinful. It's a part of the makeup. It's a part of the journey that we're all on. You're going to sin against me. You're going to sin against your spouse. You're going to sin against your children. You're going to sin against your friend. You're going to sin against your cat. You're going to, because it's just who we are as people. And there's this idea that among the church that like you shouldn't sin, that people sin against you. It's like, oh my gosh, I can't believe they did that. It's like, I can't believe they don't do it more. Because that's the grace of God in people. So I think you have to evaluate, okay, I need to remind myself that my sins against God are greater than anyone's sins against me. Right? I need to do that. And then I think you need to be willing to, Proverbs talks about overlooking the offense. Right? So I need to overlook this offense. It doesn't mean, again, I don't know what trust means. Remember, I don't know what it means. But I think it, and if you want to get at me privately, please do. You can get at me privately and we can talk more specifically once you, but I don't know what you mean by trust. But I think we have to be careful to make sure that trust isn't about maintaining my personal comfort, 
Because I know people that don't trust people because they corrected them in D group. It's like, uh, that was love that they brought that up. That wasn't, they didn't betray you. They betrayed you by not telling you sooner. So I think, I think it's like, that was, you know, so again, it's, I, I don't know what you mean, but I think we have to make sure that we recognize that my sins against God are always more, and I'm forgiven, remember, I'm forgiven, more than people's sins against me. And it's just easy to forget because in all honesty, we don't want to be sinned against, especially by other believers. But that's just not reality. That's not reality. You're going to be sinned against. No one's perfect but Jesus, pastors, apostles, bishops, whoever. It's just going to happen. And I think sometimes we get so blown out, you know, we blow it way out of proportion when someone sins against us that's a believer or a pastor or whatever. And it's like, this is welcome to living in a fallen world. And in the church, again, we're not sinless, but we're trying to sin less. And that's just going to happen. And so I think you have to remember that and then kind of work through what, once you kind of really deal with that, say, hey, you know what, man, I need to remember this, that I'm, I'm, I sin against, I'm worse than that sin against me. Then you can t- start thinking through, what does that trust mean? What are the levels of that trust? And again, without knowing the details, I, I can't really say. Right. Um, and this is uh, the final question. Um, how do we practically assess with righteous judgment the fruit of someone's behavior or life without condemning, gossiping, or being self-righteous? So <clears throat> read, this, read it again because there's a word in it I wanted. Without it's, what? It's, um, you said without? You just read, read it again one more okay, time, please. All right. How do I practically assess with righteous judgment the fruit of someone's behavior or life without condemning, gossiping, or being self-righteous? Okay. So assess is, I think, so we judge it. So anyone who believes is going to, to sin. So when we're talking about assessing, we're talking about what are we assessing? So are we assessing patterns, instances, stuff like that? Let me give you like a... Like, a, like an example that's not like really anyone in our church too, too much. But like I, I've been to churches where pe- like a woman would come in and she'd be dressed a little bit like shorts would be a little too short. Shirt would be a little too tight, stuff like that. And people would be like, oh, my gosh, look at her. Like she's not immod- be immodest or something like that. Right. That was a big deal in the family of churches in Sovereign Grace we were in. Modesty checklist and all that. And I remember thinking okay, someone came in like that one time and people would flip out. It's like, well, well, patience, patience is, is, is observes patterns, right? So I, I'm looking for patterns because people, you listen, like I said, if you look at any of our lives at any moment, you're going to see some sin that's going to be like appalling in that moment. We're looking for patterns, right? So when I'm assessing someone's, uh, what I'm concerned about are patterns, not like, yeah, I might address a situation, like, even at home, my kids be arguing and stuff. I'm like, hey, knock it off. But if I have to really talk to my kids, like, all right, man, you're doing this a little too much. And I usually say to them, look, look, son, you're doing too much, fam. You're doing a little too much. That's my intro to, okay, this is a pattern, and this is escalating, and we need to talk about it. So, again, when I'm thinking of assessing people, I want to make sure that I'm assessing patterns that I think are concerning. Then I think, again, to apply the scriptures I want to remind myself, you know, I got some patterns that are concerning too, and I'm not without that, right? So this is what what Jesus was getting at. Even though John 8, 2 through 11, 
isn't in the earliest manuscripts uh, of, of the Greek New Testament. It's in our Bibles now, but at least it acknowledges that. But even if that story isn't true, the point of that, that the adulterous woman is that Jesus said, he who has no sin cast the first stone. And all of the righteous people walked out. All the Pharisees walked out. So again, I think we have to make sure that we're like, hey, I got some patterns in my life too that I think are questionable that I need to grow in. There's, I'm not where I want to be either, so let me take that into consideration. So that helps me you know, deal with condemnation and being self-righteous if I take that seriously. Then as far as gossip, if I'm just assessing what someone is doing, I don't need other people's input to assess. So if I'm this is what gossip is. Gossip is telling someone else someone else's sin issues. Slander is lying about someone else to someone else. Right? So, like, like the, my would be like, well, why do you need to? Now, if it's like a spouse or someone close to you, or a friend, and you're trying to figure things out, I think, I think, okay, you can talk about the person without having to say who the person is. If you think, if you're worried about, there's a number of levels to, to really deal with that. But gossiping shouldn't happen because one, you don't want people to gossip about you. Two, there are sins that are in habits that you have that are concerning. And then three, you want to honor the Lord in the way you help. And four, if you're assessing someone's life, the assumption, I guess, is that you want to help that person. Because this is the thing. If you're not trying to help people, then don't assess them. Just don't leave it alone then. Because all you're going to do is just compare yourself to them and make yourself feel good about yourself. And the standard for believers is not other believers. It's the Bible. It's Jesus. My standard for how well I'm doing is not compared to how well you're doing. My standard for how well I'm doing is compared to the scriptures. It's Jesus. He's a standard. Not you. Not this person. Not Robbie Zacharias. Not John MacArthur. Not, not Eric Mason. Not whoever you can think of. That's not the standard of, of, of who I, I'm. Not, some, not Jonathan. Not some great theologian. The standard of measurement is the scriptures. How am I doing making my calling and election sure based on the scriptures. That's 2 Peter 1.10. How am I doing with what he said in verses 5 through 7? Not how am I doing in comparison to what I think you're doing. So again, I think there's a number of things you have to consider. But if you're not willing to help someone, then don't even assess them. Because for what? I'm only assessing things and talking about things because I, I intend to get involved. I intend to say something and try to help. Otherwise, and I and that might take a minute to get there, but I don't. Use, I know me with me and Mike when we talk, I don't say nothing unless I'm I'm going in. Or I think you should go in and say something here. For otherwise, for what? Why assess what other people are doing unless I care about them and want to help them? So anyway, lot there. Take the meat, spit out the bones, and 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 do what you think is honoring to the Lord. First Corinthians ten thirty one. So whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. That matters. That really matters. And if you want to, if you're really serious about assessing and helping someone, then Galatians 6, 1 and 2. If someone is, let me read, I want to read this. This is a, this is a beautiful, a beautiful verse. I want to read this. I always get a lot, just so you know, if you text me while I'm talking, I don't ever look. I just open my phone and see all these text messages. I don't look what I'm talking, so sorry. All right. Galatians 6, 1, we'll close with this. Brothers and sisters, this is if you really want to help someone, if you're concerned about their sin. Brothers and sisters, if any, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with what? A gentle spirit. Watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. Verse 2. 
carry one another's burdens in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. If you just memorized and meditated on that passage, that could prevent you from doing the very three things, condemning, being self-righteous, and I forgot what the other one was. That, that this passage can help you with all of these things. That's what I think. Gossiping. If you, apply, if you memorize and apply Galatians 6, 1 and 2, and you, believe, you will never do those things because you're fulfilling the law of Christ by not doing them. You're fulfilling the law of Christ. That's a big deal. That's a crazy. Think about this. Oh, man, think about this for a second. When we carry each other's burdens, we did this Wednesday night in my D group. Me, my D group leader, Billy, and Eli. We just, it was just us three, and we just were sharing burdens, and we were there for each other. These brothers encouraged me. We encouraged one another. We prayed for each other. It was, man, I love these dudes. It was Galatians 6, 1 and 2 right there. They, we carried each other's burdens, and the Bible says that fulfills the law of Christ. I'm not worried about telling nobody what we talked about. I'm not, this is what we do when we want to help each other. We care about each other. That's what our D group should do. That's what close relationships should do. This is what the church is missing. Spend more time on fighting over words than we do fighting against the enemy who makes us, who wants us to fight over words. So, all that, what do I know? Go ahead. You got one more? Okay. I don't, right now, so here's the thing about the debate. Many of you may be familiar with a documentary called Uncle Tom, which had Larry Elder, Candace Owens, and all these people in it. Um, they're the one, they're filming this document. They're doing another documentary, and they're filming this. So I don't, I don't know all of the dynamics. I'm, 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 it's humorous that they asked me to be a part of it. So you know I'm going to represent The Rock, but uh, we're going to be up in that thing. But I, I, I don't know yet. If I do find out, I will let you know. My, my senses, I don't think so. I don't think they want to release the footage initially because apparently this may be in the second documentary they're doing. But, you know, I'll try to do a little something, maybe get the camera on a couple questions or two and let The Rock get it. Unless I'm told you can't do that. If they don't tell me that, I might have some footage for you. But I, honestly, I don't, I don't know. I doubt they're going to stream it. I doubt they will. But we'll see. If they, if they do, I'll let you know. Thanks for asking that. And be praying for that. That should be interesting, if, not, if nothing else. All right, having said that, love you guys. Thank you for your questions. Thank you for your encouragements. Those who text me and say things, thank you for all the stuff that you guys are struggling with, wrestling with, persevering through. Really appreciate you guys a lot. Thank you for all that you do for The Rock. And uh, we will see you Wednesday night briefly for D Group. Log in, and then we'll go to our groups, and then I will see you, Lord willing, or at least you'll see me, Lord willing, uh, next Sunday as well for the end of Romans 2 and Romans 3 and 4. All right, love you. See you when I see you.